Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for January 30th through February 5th, 2023. This is covering Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapters 4 and 5. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hooray! Hi, Scriptures! And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 15 minutes, 12 seconds. Wow, so short. What would it be daily? 2 minutes, 10 seconds. Oh, gives us lots of time for extra study. Here we've got time codes if you want to take it step by step. Otherwise, buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. But right before we get started, remember that a link to a PDF of all our quotes and graphics, as well as links from the episode, can be found in the description section below the YouTube video. We hope these will help you in your study. Also, there is an audio-only version of this podcast that is available wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Right! One of the great comforts in mortal life is that we have a Savior that not only loves us, but understands our mortal experience. In the Book of Mormon... Alma the Younger wrote in Alma chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Paul would later sum it up in these words in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So good. What a great perspective to start with. Let's jump right in to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But we will reference Luke's version of these events in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 as well. For this account, we'll include the Joseph Smith translation, which provides changes and clarifications that can help us understand the scriptures more clearly. You can find them in your footnotes. Starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be with God. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 adds an important observation. It says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Remember that he was full of the Holy Ghost because, as Luke reminds us, he had just come from his baptism in the Jordan. God had manifested his divine approval, and the Holy Ghost had descended upon Jesus. Let's go back to Matthew's account, chapter 4, verse 2. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, and had communed with God, he was afterwards and hungered, and was left to be tempted of the devil. I think that phrase, afterwards he was in hungered, is probably an understatement. <laughs> now, do you remember Moses was also upon the mountain in the presence of God in Exodus 24, 18? Moses also had a similar experience in Moses chapter 1. After being in the presence of God, he was left to be tempted of Satan. Interesting parallel. Notice also what Jesus did to be closer with God. He fasted. The Institute Manual gives us a quote from Elder Joseph B. Worthlin. This is from the April 2001 General Conference. He described some blessings that come from fasting. He says, quote, Fasting, coupled with mighty prayer, is powerful. 
It can fill our minds with the revelations of the Spirit. It can strengthen us against times of temptation. Fasting and prayer can help develop within us courage and confidence. They can strengthen our character and build self-restraint and discipline. Often, when we fast, our righteous prayers and petitions have greater power. Testimonies grow. We mature spiritually and emotionally and sanctify our souls. Each time we fast, we gain a little more control over our worldly appetites and passions. Close quote. Nice. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, I don't see this as an accident that Satan came to tempt Jesus when he was most vulnerable. The Institute Manual has this quote from President Howard W. Hunter. This comes from his book, The Temptations of Christ. He says, quote, Such a time is always the tempter's moment when we are emotionally or physically spent, when we are weary, vulnerable, and least prepared to resist the insidious suggestions he makes. This was an hour of danger, the kind of moment in which many men fall and succumb to the subtle allurement of the devil. But Jesus didn't. Look how he responded in verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus here answers Satan's temptation with a scripture from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. The Institute Manual gives us this quote from the October 1992 General Conference from Elder Merrill J. Bateman. He says, quote, There are certain blessings obtained when one searches the scriptures. As a person studies the words of the Lord and obeys them, he or she draws closer to the Savior and obtains a greater desire to live a righteous life. The power to resist temptation increases and spiritual weaknesses are overcome. Close quote. Nice. Going back to the chapter, verse 5. Then Jesus was taken up into the holy city, and the Spirit setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. Then the devil came unto him and said, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, notice this time Satan quotes Scripture to influence Jesus to give in to temptation. He fights fire with fire, as it were. Mm. Note that although he is quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, the whole psalm reflects the statement in verse 14, where it reads, Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. This is a frequent problem sometimes. People will often refute truth using the scriptures, but using them selectively, using a tactic that's often called cherry-picking, taking verses perhaps out of context or without full understanding. This is what Satan is doing. It's almost as if Satan is saying, those who love God will be delivered. You love God, don't you? Prove it. But Jesus replies in verse 7, Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. 
Once again, Jesus responds and silences Satan with Scripture. He is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Going on with verse 8. And again, Jesus was in the Spirit, and it taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And the devil came unto him again, and said, All these things will I give unto thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And there it is again. Jesus rebukes Satan with Scripture. Here he is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. How often do you turn to the Lord through the Scriptures to help you resist temptation? Although many of us have access to Scriptures constantly on our mobile devices, there is no substitute for memorizing a Scripture as Jesus did here. There's a great quote from Elder Richard G. Scott. This comes from the October 2011 General Conference where he says, quote, The Scriptures can become stalwart friends that are not limited by geography or calendar. They are always available when needed. Learning, pondering, searching, and memorizing scriptures is like filling a filing cabinet with friends, values, and truths that can be called upon anytime, anywhere in the world, end quote. I love whenever Richard G. Scott talks about the scriptures. Amen. He's so passionate and excited about them. In another talk he gave, and this is the April 2013 General Conference, He said, if you young people would review a verse of scripture as often as some of you send text messages, you could soon have hundreds of passages of scripture memorized. Those passages would prove to be a powerful source of inspiration and guidance by the Holy Ghost in times of need. Nice. Now, you might feel like, well, gosh, I have a hard time memorizing scriptures. One tool that can help, and it's fun too, is the Church's Doctrinal Mastery app. If you're not part of seminary, you may not have heard of it. You can find it for free in the App Store. In it, there are flashcards and quizzes, but also a tool for memorizing. What's great is that you can use any scriptures you want, not just Doctrinal Mastery scriptures. I'll link the tutorial video I made that can help you get started. It's a great tool for everyone. Use it for yourself. Use it with your family. Have fun, but memorize scriptures. What a blessing that will be. So let's review these temptations of Satan. The Institute Manual gives us this great quote from the April 1999 General Conference. This is from Bishop Keith B. McMullen of the Presiding Bishopric. He said, quote, The temptations he suffered at the outset of his ministry typify those that beset us. Speaking of these temptations, to turn stones into bread, to cast himself from the temple's pinnacle, and to sell his soul for earth's treasures, President David O. McKay said, Classify them, and you will find that under one of those three nearly every given temptation that makes you and me spotted comes to us as one, a temptation of appetite, two, a yielding to the pride and fashion and vanity of those alienated from the things of God, or three, a gratifying of the desire for the riches of the world 
or power among men, end quote. This is so important. Remember these temptations? These represent the best that Satan had to offer in order to try to derail the Savior. So they must have been impressive from Jesus's perspective. But many commentators who have talked about what these temptations mean or why they would be temptations for Jesus, they don't all make sense to me. For example, some people say that Jesus was tempted to show off by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple to be saved by angels. I don't see it. Or that Jesus would want to rule everybody with an iron fist like over the kingdoms of the earth. I don't see why that's a temptation necessarily either. It seems that, like what President David O. McKay was saying, that at the core, these must be universal human temptations something we all could relate to. Let us share some additional thoughts to kind of flesh out these temptations, just for your consideration. Let's start with turning stone to bread. This would be using the divine gifts or powers God has given us for selfish purposes or to satisfy natural appetites. We may not be able to turn a stone to bread, but we are given the divine gift to, with God, create life. But other divine gifts may also include talents, social or intellectual gifts, or anything we have been blessed with that could bless the lives of others. Satan could tempt us to use them to only satisfy our own desires. That's universal. How about jumping then from the pinnacle of the temple? One possibility for a universal temptation in this situation is the desire to not want to accept responsibility for our actions. I want to do what I want to do, but I expect others to deal with the consequences, whether that is God or our fellow brothers and sisters. Along with that might be a desire to blame others for our circumstances rather than self-reflect. Right. I think that's something we might all be able to relate to. Sure. And how about all the kingdoms of the world? Many of us may not think that having control of all the kingdoms of the world would be much of a temptation, but Luke offers another piece to this temptation. In Luke chapter 4, verse 6, Satan says, All this power will I give thee. Power. Power to do what? To control others. Within each of us is the desire to control what others think and do, or to have the rules and laws apply to everyone else, but not us. Maybe not always on the world stage, but think about other places we see people shame or force others into conformity. Social media can be a reflection of this. Those formats don't often find people trying to reason calmly and logically with one another, but often we try to impose our opinion on others. Popular ideologies can do this too. Examine if your ideology insists that someone who disagrees with it is not just wrong, but that they are a bad person for disagreeing. This is an attempt to shame someone to conformity, not reason with them. Still not convinced that you're tempted by this? Have you ever insisted that two fighting kids apologize to each other and they better mean it? <laughs> In essence, think like I want you to think and feel how I tell you to feel. It's perhaps more tempting than we realize. Good point. I used to think that 
Well, sure, Jesus had no trouble resisting temptation. He's Jesus. Of course, he resists temptation, but I am not perfect. And so how can Jesus understand how hard this is for me? There is a quote from author C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity, that explains it so well. He says, quote, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Close quote. Love that. I do too. That made so much sense to me. Interestingly, we know that Jesus has the power to achieve everything Satan tempted him with. He does miraculously produce food, but for others, not for himself. Remember, water to wine in John 2, feeding thousands in John 6, and making nets overflow with fish in Matthew 4. He would also receive divine confirmation of and assistance with his ministry. Remember his baptism and God's appearance at the Mount of Transfiguration. And we know he will one day rule the world as Lord of all. But in order to help us all come to heaven for the glory of the Father, not his own glory. Satan's temptation was for Jesus to attempt to fulfill his divine identity at Satan's bidding, instead of waiting for the right time and the right way. Jesus would establish his divine identity as the Son of God in ways that aligned with Heavenly Father's will, not Satan's. My wife had a great insight when we were talking about this. I was sharing that in the YouTube comments on our Malachi episode last year, Scott and Susan had pointed out the description of Christ being identified as the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. This reminded me of some beautiful imagery from Isaiah. Let me share these references with you. First, Malachi 4, verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And now this imagery from Isaiah in chapter 60, verses 1 and 2 and 19. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. See, Christ is the light which helps us resist temptation because he illuminates the consequences of sin in sharp contrast. The brighter the light, 
the darker the shadows. As we were discussing this, my wife pointed out that if you are getting ready to go to surgery and they tell you not to eat, but you don't know why, maybe they're just trying to torture you, you may be much more tempted to just eat a little or maybe disregard the instruction altogether. But if the purposes are clear to you, in other words, if the light illuminates blessings and consequences, it is much easier to resist temptation. In the example of a surgery, think about how much easier it is to resist your body's desire for food if you knew that when the anesthetic is used, your body's reflexes are temporarily stopped. If your stomach has food and drink in it, there's a risk of vomiting or bringing up food into your throat. If this happens, the food could get stuck in your lungs and affect your breathing, as well as causing damage to your lungs. Now, are you more or less tempted to eat before surgery? (laughs) In spiritual matters, the more light we gain through divinely appointed sources, the more clearly we can distinguish the good from the bad. We talked about this in our first episode this year. Remember this image of the sheep by the path? What is wrong with following this innocent-looking sheep off the path? It's not until the sheep is illuminated by that light that comes from divinely appointed sources for truth that we can see in its shadow a ravening wolf. We may not always know the specific consequences of sin, but we know that it takes us away from our Heavenly Father. The more filled we are with Christ's light, the more that is reason enough to resist the temptation to sin. Christ, then, is the perfect example of what to do and how to react to temptations that will take us away from God. The Institute Manual has this great quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. This comes from April 1987 General Conference. He said, quote, By emulating the Master, who endured temptations but gave no heed unto them, we, too, can live in a world filled with temptations such as are common to man. Of course, Jesus noticed the tremendous temptations that came to him, but he did not process and reprocess them. Instead, he rejected them promptly. If we entertain temptations, soon they begin entertaining us. End quote. Good caution. Going back to Matthew chapter 4, let's look at verse 11. And now Jesus knew that John was cast into prison, And he sent angels, and behold, they came and ministered unto him. How interesting is this inspired verse from the Joseph Smith translation. Jesus' thoughts turned to John the Baptist, who was in prison. Angels are summoned not to minister to the Savior, but to minister to John. What happens next is a little tricky. Remember that we are studying a harmony of the Gospels this year. That means that we are attempting to create a chronological order of events and insert each separate Gospel into that chronology. We discuss this more in detail in our video, Understanding the Message of the Gospels, an Introduction. For our purposes now, let me introduce you to a scripture resource you can find in the back of your scriptures or in your Gospel Library app under Scriptures Study Helps. This is called Harmony of the Gospels. In the introduction, it says, The following tables compare the teachings of the Savior as found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Latter-day Revelation. An effort has been made to give these in chronological order. 
This is not always possible because the authors of the four Gospels do not always agree in matters of chronology. If your paper scriptures are from before 2013, you will find this in the Bible Dictionary under Harmony. The digital version is created vertically, which we find harder to use. So for our purposes here, we'll use the version found in the 2013 paper scriptures. On the far left is the attempt to create a chronology of events, and then we can see which gospel has an account of the event. Here is the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 and Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. These are the verses we just covered. And then notice that there is nothing for a while except in John's gospel. But we are not scheduled to study those until next week. In John, we study chapters 2 and 3 before inserting the account of John the Baptist getting in trouble with Herod Antipas, which, as you can see, references not only accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but is included in chapters that are all over the place. After all that, we finish the contents of Matthew and Luke chapter 4, which seems to happen about the same time as John chapter 4, which again, we are not covering until next week. So, what do we do? Remember that the reading assignment is Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapters 4 and 5. So, let's take a look at the rest, but please recognize that we will be covering material next week that is happening before what we are about to study. Right. So, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, we find that following his experience in the wilderness, the Savior went to Galilee and dwelt in the city of Capernaum. Matthew noted that the Savior's ministry in Galilee fulfilled a prophecy made by Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Let's read that, starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. The Institute Manual has a great map that shows the location of the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, called Zabulon and Nephthalim, as Matthew is quoting the Greek version of the scriptures. Here we can see that they cover the lands that are called Galilee in the days of Jesus. There he preaches repentance to the people, bringing them light. So look at the harmony. Notice this next event. There is an experience covered only by Luke 4. So let's head there to look at verses 16 through 30. After preaching in the synagogues in Galilee, he returned to his hometown of Nazareth, while there, he stood in a synagogue and read from the book of Isaiah, starting in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Look for how the people of Nazareth responded to Jesus' bold declaration that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Picking it up in Luke chapter 4, verse 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Now look at the Old Testament accounts Jesus uses to chastise the people. Going on in verse 24, And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, or Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, or the Hebrew is Zarephath, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisius, or Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. Now, do you see a theme here? Although there were Israelite widows and lepers, it was two non-Israelites, or Gentiles, who experienced the miracles. Again, note what Jesus said to them in verse 24. No prophet is accepted in his own country. Other accounts tell that Jesus performed very few miracles in Nazareth because the people there generally lacked faith in him. Think about how important demonstrations of faith have been for the miracles and blessings you have experienced. Is there a miracle you are praying for that is requiring a demonstration of faith right now? Remember this experience in Nazareth. These people were restricting the great blessings they could have received because they would not show faith in Jesus Christ. And even worse, let's keep reading, verse 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Now, we're not told clearly how Jesus passed through the midst of this angry mob and went his way. We're only told that he did. Now, for an interesting contrast, look at what happens with Jesus and the people in Capernaum. In verses 31 through 37, Jesus cast out devils. Verses 38 and 39, Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. This is a significant story as it gives us the detail that Peter was married. That's right. You can't have a mother-in-law without a wife. Well, that's true. Now, in verses 40 through 44, Jesus healed the sick and cast out more devils, and the people desired that Jesus would not leave them. But Jesus explained that he must preach the kingdom of God in other cities. Let's go on then to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, where the heck is the lake of Gennesaret? Check your Bible dictionary in your scripture study helps, and you'll see an entry for Gennesaret, land of. Read it, 
and you'll see that the Lake of Gennesaret is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Back to the chapter, verse 2. And saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them, and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down, and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught, or a catch, or haul, as it says in the footnotes. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. Notice the use of the word nevertheless. It's almost like a greater than symbol in math. What follows is greater than, nevertheless, that which preceded it. Even though we have no success after doing all we could do, your word is greater than our thoughts and ways. We will be obedient. Going back to the chapter, verse 6, And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Have we seen others in our studies who have felt unworthy when the Lord calls? Abraham, Moses, Enoch, Isaiah, and so on? That humility is not a sign of unworthiness, but an acknowledgment of his need for a Savior. Notice the calling to no longer catch fish, but souls. In verse 11 it says, And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now various observations have been made about the purpose of this miracle, and perhaps various lessons could be drawn from it. Number one, the call was extended after an acquisition of wealth in the fish they caught. Now, what will they choose? The work of God or the priorities of man? And two, they would have been called to leave their families, and as providers, they may have worried about them instead of concentrating on their ministry. This massive catch demonstrates that God can and will take care of their families while they are gone. Or three, it could just be an object lesson. Jesus is demonstrating that through him, a miraculous work would be performed to bring people into the gospel. It conjures up images of Jeremiah's prophecy in 1616 that God would send many fishers to fish souls. Or that of Ezekiel in 47.10, that abundant fish would be caught in the living waters proceeding from the temple. Or... Maybe it is all of those things and more. From the Institute Manual, in this quote from the April 2002 General Conference, Elder Joseph B. Worthlin helps us to see a modern application of the experience the early disciples had in leaving their nets and following the Savior. Quote, 
They were fishermen before they heard the call. Casting their nets into the Sea of Galilee, Peter and Andrew stopped as Jesus of Nazareth approached, looked into their eyes, and spoke the simple words, Follow me. Matthew writes that the two fishermen straightway left their nets and followed him. If the Savior were to call you today, would you be just as willing to leave your nets and follow him? I am confident that many would. We might define a net as anything that entices or prevents us from following the call of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Nets, in this context, can be our work, our hobbies, our pleasures, and above all else, our temptations and sins. In short, a net can be anything that pulls us away from our relationship with our Heavenly Father or from His restored church. Let me give you a modern example. A computer can be a useful and indispensable tool, but if we allow it to devour our time with vain, unproductive, and sometimes destructive pursuits, it becomes an entangling net. Many of us enjoy watching athletic contests, but if we can recite the statistics of our favorite players and at the same time forget birthdays or anniversaries, neglect our families, or ignore the opportunity to render acts of Christ-like service, then athletics may also be an entangling net. It is impossible to list the many nets that can ensnare us and keep us from following the Savior, but if we are sincere in our desire to follow Him, we must straightway leave the world's entangling nets and follow Him. End quote. Exactly right. It's interesting to note that we just read in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4, that Jesus had healed Simon's mother-in-law. So we have a sense that they already have a relationship that they've been building with the Savior before they're called to leave all and follow him. This is a process. But regardless, to follow Jesus requires profound trust. In the 2016 Seminary Manual, it has a quote from Elder Richard G. Scott from the October 1995 General Conference. He says this, quote, This life is an experience in profound trust. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in his teachings. Trust in our capacity as led by the Holy Spirit to obey those teachings for happiness now and for a purposeful, supremely happy eternal existence. To trust means to obey willingly without knowing the end from the beginning. To produce fruit Your trust in the Lord must be more powerful and enduring than your confidence in your own personal feelings and experience. Close quote. I like that. Similarly, the Come Follow Me manual includes this great quote from President Ezra Taft Benson that we were recently reminded of in General Conference. He says, quote, Men and women who turn their lives over to God will discover that he can make a lot more out of their lives than they can, end quote. Oh, so good to remember. Now, the rest of Luke chapter 5 will be covered in other lessons in the future, such as when we cover Mark chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 9. Again, you can see this in your harmony. But here's a summary of the events in Luke chapter 5. In verses 12 through 15, Jesus Christ heals a leper. In verses 17 through 26, Jesus heals healed a man with palsy. 27 through 32, 
Jesus called Levi, or Matthew, to follow him. And in verses 36 to 39, Jesus told the parables of the old and new garments and bottles. And so in this reading block, we see the calling of certain disciples, and more will be added, but Peter, James, and John here exemplify the qualities of discipleship as they, quote, forsook all and followed the Savior. The Institute Manual includes this great quote from James E. Faust. This comes from October 2006 General Conference. He said, quote, Jesus said to Peter, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Luke then tells us, When they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. They became the Lord's disciples. The word for disciple and the word for discipline both come from the same Latin root, discipulus, which means pupil. It emphasizes practice or exercise. Self-discipline and self-control are consistent and permanent characteristics of the followers of Jesus, as exemplified by Peter, James, and John, who indeed forsook all and followed him. What is discipleship? It is primarily obedience to the Savior, Discipleship includes many things. It is chastity. It is tithing. It is family home evening. It is keeping all the commandments. It is forsaking anything that is not good for us. Discipleship requires us to forsake evil transgression and enjoy what President Spencer W. Kimball has called the miracle of forgiveness. This can come only through repentance, which means that we forsake sin and resolve each day to be followers of truth and righteousness. As Jesus taught, What manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. End quote. What a great message. So what will you do this week to commit to being a disciple of Jesus Christ? And what will you forsake to follow him? A great question to discuss and ponder. I hope you've had a great time discovering the gems in these chapters. There's lots more to come. So keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them at our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>